Now please turn in your Bibles to Ruth 1. Remember that is after Judges and before 1 Samuel, Ruth 1. And we'll be reading all of Ruth 1. As we prepare to go to 1 Samuel, uh, let us understand this most helpful book as we transition to 1 Samuel. So this Ruth 1, I will be reading the entire chapter. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law and returned from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my wombs, my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they have grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me. For your sake, that the, Lord, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred before them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated.
Some books of the Bible just feel strange to people, almost like they're not in the 66 books of the Bible. Books like Esther, which barely mention God at all, are question marks for people like this. And it certainly can be hard sometimes for these people. We New Testament people are used to hearing God mentioned and God acting directly over and over in the New Testament epistles. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have the Son of God, Christ Jesus, at the very center nearly of all of the action. So when we come to books like Ruth, things seem strange to us. Where is God mentioned in his actions? He's, he's mentioned, yes, but he seems very rarely to act in this book, or so it seems on the surface. But this is really instructive for us. When we look at a book like this, with this lens, we really have what we'll find a deist view of the world. Deists believe that God may have created, but now God is either uninterested or unable to interact with the world. Things go on ticking without his direct personal touch upon the world, so says the deist. But the book of Ruth completely destroys and eradicates this view. God, our Redeemer, is in the everyday life. The assumption in every sentence of this book, and especially in the small things, as we'll see, the, the seemingly random things of our life and Ruth's life. It is a book of encouragement to the ordinary man, dealing with the small, seemingly ordinary things which we deal with every day, and which will never enter into the history books of the great people of the world, for the men who feel these things are mundane. But let us consider Ruth. We will shortly consider Ruth in total before moving on to the much longer 1 Samuel. This short book comes directly before 1 Samuel in the Bible, and this is because it actually comes directly before 1 Samuel in time as well. As our text says in verse 1, the events of the book of Ruth happened during the chaotic time of the judges, that is, in the days when the judges ruled. Israel was defined by this statement often said in the Judges, in Judges, the book of Judges. This statement here, they were defined by it. In those days, there was no king in the land, and everyone did what was best in their own eyes, which you heard already from Judges 17. This is a time when Israel is defined by anarchy and rebellion against God, with little or no rule provided from the Judges who ought to have ruled. If you secretly think, by the way, that this is a good type of society, anarchy, which is becoming more popular these days, I would encourage you to read Judges and see the horrors, depravity, lies, selfishness, poverty, and war, which is so common in this way of government. This is Ruth's time. We must keep that in mind. It is very depressing in this first chapter, but it is really, it's a wonderful story, and one of the best short stories out there, especially in the, the in old times. This is one of the first short stories. But notice that the time of the judges is not the time of the author, the writer of Ruth. He speaks of the days of the judges as a pastime, says, in the days when the judges ruled, speaking in the past tense. We are past this time into a different era, the era of King David, in fact, as Ruth 4 makes very clear. 
This makes Ruth a very valuable piece to study before going into the events of 1 Samuel, which detail the, the rise of Saul and of David and the rise of the true king of Israel. It's a personal book. It, that is, it, it's giving us a, a glimpse, um, some needed context, not merely of national or political happenings, but personal happenings, everyday person-to-person happenings. God is indeed in control of the minutest detail of these people's lives and our lives. And it is always for a good purpose. He even uses the evil and the anarchy of Israel for good. This is part of what Ruth is teaching us. And what Ruth is written from the standpoint of 1 Samuel. It asks, where was God during these crazy times and the time of the judges? It was thought of like the Dark Ages are by many today, the Middle Ages of Europe, days which are dark and uncivilized. But even in these days, God's kindness and faithfulness is present, as the writer shows. In the darkest hours, God is drawing his people to himself and to his Messiah. And we can see this even in the small things of life. So first, let us go to Ruth 1, and this is the the great section, the greatest section of Ruth. This is Naomi's misery. This is starting from verse 1, when introducing all the characters. Elimelech is the first, starting in verse 2. It is in this estate of misery, of sin and misery, that we meet our characters. First, Elimelech and Naomi. Elimelech's name is ironic. It means God is king. And it's ironic because Elimelech denies that God is king with nearly every action that is shown in this book. He and his wife flee the kingdom and kingship of God and live in Moab, the nation which God has sworn to destroy as his enemy. Moab actually had oppressed the Israelites for hundreds of years during the time of the judges as we see in Judges 3, and made Israel to sin against God in Judges 10 and 11. And that sin resulted in 24,000 Israelites dying because of them. Because of this and many other things, Moabites were never even allowed, at least in the Old Covenant, into the sanctuary of God. See this from Deuteronomy 23. Elimelech's retreat to Moab would have been like an Englishman fleeing to Germany in the years before World War II, an enemy in a future enemy's land. But, and this is a theme of Israel's anarchy, Elimelech did this because he judged it good in his own eyes, which is what anarchy is anyway. His decision was pragmatic. There was a famine in Israel, which was quite obviously God's judgment for sin. And rather than repent and return to God, Elimelech just runs with his family. And he does what is good in his own eyes. This famine is obviously a judgment from God, by the way, because Moab is just across the river from Israel, merely miles away from Israel, and yet they seem to be doing okay. Elimelech does not consider God and his covenant. He considers first himself and his own comfort. Therefore, repentance never enters into his own mind. God is not king to Elimelech. What's worse, however, from Elimelech's tribe, the tribe of Judah, the king of Israel was foretold to come. Genesis 49 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, 
and he runs from Bethlehem, the birthplace of the great kings of Israel, David himself as well. Elimelech allows his eyes to rule him and not God's promises, not his word. And so do his children, as we see as sin continues oftentimes in the children of unbelievers and those who, who rebel against God. Malon and Kilian, who stay in Moab and take Moabite wives. Intermarriage was strictly forbidden unless those women became worshipers of Yahweh, the Lord. But Elimelech and his sons had stopped going to worship because how could they? They were far away from the sanctuary, and were they to return, they would have been under great punishment, even death, because of their marriage to these unbelievers, as we see when Naomi tells her, uh, tells Ruth in verse 15, go back to your people as your sister-in-law went back to her people and to her, her gods. These were not Yahweh worshipers. But in the end, Elimelech, Malon, and Kilian all die. What's worse, Malon and Kilian have no children for potentially 10 years of marriage to their Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah. For a woman in Palestine, this was utter disaster, a disaster which almost never happened and a sign of God's curse. Naomi, Elimelech's widow, has no husband to provide and protect her, and now no sons to provide and protect her, and no grandsons to hope for provision and protection. She is utterly alone, And without heir, her husband's line, a line which includes the great heroes like Joshua, the son of Nun, the conqueror of the land of promise, will die out. And she has no hope. And she is in the midst of utter anarchy and death around her. This is utter darkness for Naomi. So she determines that there is nothing more but just to go home. She even changes her name in verse 20 from Naomi, which means my delight, to Mara, which means bitterness. This is an Israelite woman who has lost everything and has nothing to gain. Therefore, Naomi just decides to go home because, verse 6, God had visited his people and gave them food. Naomi decides to return to God, even if her motives are pragmatic and they're not right in her own heart. God still uses this. Any small step toward God, the Lord will use. And this is the first ray of hope that we have in the book of Ruth. But there's much more. So let's continue to see God's work through Ruth and Naomi after this first step of repentance, this first step of turning away from Moab to God in hatred of sin as we go to the second section. The love and the confession of Ruth for the blessing of Naomi. Let us go to uh, the, the arguments first that, that Naomi brings against her two daughters-in-law to come with her, and then we will get to the confession, the great and wondrous confession of Ruth. Unlike Naomi, her daughters-in-law are not in such a hopeless place as her. Their husbands are dead, yes, and this is a great tragedy, but they were still of maritable age, and of still childbearing age. That is, it's an incredible horror, that the worst of life to have your loved one die. Yet, unlike Naomi, they're not in the same risk of starvation and utter destitution. 
but they are still of maritable age. So Naomi urges them home with three arguments, that they may not be cursed along with her as she considers herself cursed. Not starve and die as she expects herself to do. She gives her gives these two, her daughters-in-law, three arguments. Let's go over them very quickly. First, she argues from probability in verses 8 through 10, saying, go, return, to imperatives, to commands. And she says that it's more likely that they will find another husband back in Moab than in the land that she is going to. But both Orpah and Ruth answer, no, we will not. We will return with you and to your people. Second, she argues from providence in verses 12 through 13, saying in verse 13, summarizing, It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, saying, Daughters, I am a cursed woman. Do not go with me and be cursed with me any more than you are now. And although this is, this is wrong in many ways, as we'll find out, it is still see the pathos, the, the love, the emotion that she has for these, her daughters-in-law, not related by blood at all. She says, daughters, not daughters-in-law, daughters, I am a cursed woman. See, the love that is between these people, it is wonderful to see, and yet Orpah leaves. Orpah leaves, but Ruth clings to Naomi. This word cling in the word used in, is actually the word that is used in Genesis 2 for the bond of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife. Cling. There's no ordinary love from Ruth to Naomi. It is a love which surpasses mere friendship or cultural expectations of pity. It is a love that is a height of love for another in self-sacrifice that reaches to the greatest expressions of human love. This is obviously the start of God's work in Ruth. This is love which doesn't make any sense in itself. It is love like a death wish, but love for the other person in self-sacrifice. This is Christian love. But God's work continues in her reaction to Ruth's or to Naomi's rather third argument, which is, your sister did it. There must be something to my arguments if your sister did it. Go with her too. This is not so much an argument as it is a last gasp of hope, of love to keep Ruth from what she imagines to her own dismal fate. Orpo is convinced there must have been something to me being a cursed woman, she says. But Ruth's answer is the turning point of all of Ruth 1. All this loving rejection from Naomi brings out an astounding confession that can be from no other source than from God working in her, as we see in verses 16 through 17. I'll read it. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is nothing less than a wholesale adoption of the entire life and suffering of the other person. For a single woman of these anarchic times of the judges, this is the abandonment of all security. And she has set her life and death upon Naomi and the God of Naomi, who has seemingly cursed her and even killed her own husband and Naomi's husband. 
Ruth's faith, as we can call it here, may be in somewhat in Naomi, but also Naomi's God. See this here. May the Lord do also to me, and more also of anything, but death parts me from you. Her faith is in this God, the God of Naomi. And her faith is also one of repentance, for both of them turn back from Moab and go and return, shuv as it is in Hebrew, to God and to his land. All unbelievers, as is teaching us, return to God if they become a Christian in repentance, for he is the true God. So we return to him as all people are his. Also, see how Ruth's faith is rewarded here. When they return to Israel, that is Bethlehem in verse 22, the barley harvest is in full bloom. There's abundance. There's blessing in these things. That is, he helps them in their repentance. And even in this small show of repentance, especially with Ruth, who she says, your people shall be my people, your God, my God. This is not a perfect repentance, nor a perfect conversion by any means. But the Lord uses it and blesses them both as they go back to Israel. What's more, we know that this small act of faithfulness resulted in David, the king. We will constantly return to this in Ruth, by the way. For David begat Jesus and his line. David is the grandson of Ruth. We see this in Ruth 4, 21. So that the Lord blesses even this, this going back to the land, this small act of faithfulness. So as we go to our our last section, our conclusion, for God, as we learn from all this, the everyday is important. For our Lord, he has not overlooked the small and the insignificant in the life of his people. In your suffering, he is not asleep and he will surely act. And even in our smallest acts of repentance, if we have true faith, he rewards us. Wait upon the Lord, for he blesses those who seek him. In the case of Naomi and Ruth, even those who seek him imperfectly. Any action of dependence upon God, any repentance unto God, for in his people, he surely rewards. For this is his work within us. Although it may be imperfectly shown, he rewards it. Any action of returning to God, no matter how far away they may have wandered, will be met with a kiss and a fattened calf. This is not to say that all suffering will be taken away in this life of ours, but that it will be in the land of the living. Where Ruth and Naomi returned to the land of the living, that is God's land, there was life, and soon life abundantly. Christ gives us an even better covenant than this, the substance of which, which we have in the New Testament and we have in faith in Christ. More than assurance of blessings on earth, we have the assurance of Christ's justice. Just as Ruth is nothing without the genealogy pointing to the already born and rejoicing, or reigning David, rather, in the time of the author, so our mundane lives are nothing without God's plan. And I'll tell you what I mean by this. And especially without being engrafted into the genealogy of Christ as Ruth was. That is... Our world hates the mundane. They want desperately to be in the history books. 
Unbelief looks at the world as if it had nothing in it, as if there was no meaning at all. But we know our lives are filled with meaning. The mundane is the absence of meaning to the world. But Christians, we cannot believe this, and Ruth directs us against it. If you believe this, then you must repent. The world is filled with God's plan. Every action of Ruth and Naomi, small though they may be, of repentance and love towards one another, even their stumblings to repentance, this was all from God and in his plan. Your actions have meaning. Your suffering has meaning. Every action toward God in repentance, even the smallest, filled with sin like Naomi and the family, is used by God for salvation. Even your actions against repentance when Naomi's family fled from Israel are filled with God's plan and pushing his people toward himself with loving punishments. The love of God is filled in the mundane so that we can say when we look to our our friends and our family who run away from God that they are not without hope. For the Lord works through even the mundane, even those things which we cannot see, and brings them back to repentance. And why? The history books are filled with Christ. Each Christian fills his life with the significance of Christ and his kingship, not with his own. Ephesians 1 and Colossians 2 tells us that history at every page, has its meaning from Christ and his significance in the second coming. History and the world was made in Christ and for Christ, says Colossians 2. Ruth looked forward to a reality we read as present in Ruth. That is David's kingship. Especially in Ruth 1, the hope of a happy life, let alone a child, or a child that would become a king seems so far away that Naomi argues against it three times. And so the hope of Christ's return and our vindication often seems so very far away to us, but it's already arrived, just as it has in a Ruth. That is, the author shows that their hope has arrived, and it has for us too. Christ has already accomplished his work, and we already reign. And all the world continues to evolve, The future has come to the present. Your mundane life is not indeed mundane in God's eyes. It is filled with eternal, infinite meaning in Christ. Like Ruth and Naomi, we come to Jerusalem with nothing. And as Naomi says, she has been emptied. She went away full but has come back empty. We come to Jerusalem, come to Christ with nothing, but we leave full. We come barren to Christ in repentance and faith, and we leave with his righteousness, just as Naomi and Ruth have and will. We oftentimes look down upon ourselves and despair and rarely invoke his name as Ruth and Naomi should have, thinking he is far off, but he is never far off, brothers and sisters. The sun and the moon shine and the rain and the snow fall that his people might glorify and enjoy him. And as we see here, the barley harvest comes for the blessing of his people. 
Let us look to the barley harvest and see the fields which God has prepared for our good in this life, the mundane things of life. And look for even greater blessings in Christ, for he is the bread of life and the seed of the woman who has crushed all opposition and has brought in the kingdom which even the great King David could only rejoice about in 2 Samuel 7. According to the world, all that we see is mundane, but look how such small acts of even partial faithfulness from the most powerless and downtrodden people, even of this ancient Palestine, result in a world-changing event, even the birth of David and of Christ. Christians, mundane actions directly apply not only to the eternal destiny of everyone around you and you, everyone you meet and yourself, but also to Christ. That's what I mean. David was to come. He was foretold. All of Israel knew it. But look at how he used the everyday faithfulness of mundane people to fulfill his eternal goals. David was born of a Moabitess. Jesus was born in a cattle stall. The world at Christ's time ridiculed this mundane Christ. Who is this God who was crucified on a tree by mere men? But know this, Christian, he did not stay dead. The mundane is never mundane to God, only to the blind, those who cannot see the work that God has done. Your actions are like Ruth's, simple acts of faithfulness. They are filled with meaning, not for salvation and not from yourself, but from Christ's salvation and for his glory. Be like Ruth and turn entirely upon the salvation which Yahweh alone gives. And look to him alone for, for significance. Look to him alone for understanding. This is not a mundane life, but one filled with Christ and filled with eternity. Let us go to our great God in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have indeed worked in your people. You have worked repentance in your people. And even for those who have given incomplete, it seems, imperfect repentance, you have used even their sinful actions, this incomplete repentance and faith, and you have brought them more and more to you that they might fully repent, that they might come to you and rejoice in your salvation, that they might be fully underneath your covenant. They might look fully to the Messiah, Christ Jesus, and have faith in him and reject any faith in ourselves. But Lord, we pray as we are here on this earth that we would not think of mundane things as if they were mundane, as if you in the heavens simply started this world and have no personal interaction with it. Lord, you have proven that you do with your son, but even more so, Lord, you have shown us through Ruth that every single action is for your glory and is in your book, is in your history. So that although some people sin, or some people make bad decisions, you use them for the good of your glory and for the good of your people. Lord, we pray that you would bring us to that great day of redemption, that we would look fully upon Christ, that we would hope in him and hope that he would come soon. We pray, Lord, that you would. We glorify you today, O Lord, and we pray that we would for all eternity. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.